This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. How do you manage thyroid nodules? How do you act on the result of the thyroid ultrasound? When will you request a fine needle biopsy of the thyroid nodule? How do you interpret the biopsy result? What is the role of thyroid function tests? What is the best treatment option? Professor Lee Delbridge presents a case study that does exemplify some of the complexities of this condition. His explanation and teaching will help you make the right clinical decisions for your patients with a thyroid nodule. Professor Delbridge, tell us about yourself. Uh, Well, I'm Lee Delbridge. I'm a surgeon uh, at Royal North Shore Hospital and uh, professor of surgery or emeritus professor of surgery at the University of Sydney. Uh, I've spent my entire life treating thyroid disease as a surgeon, but I see myself as an operating endocrinologist. So I investigate thyroid disease and then treat it uh, surgically. Uh, I've got over 300 publications in the area of thyroid disease and have trained large numbers of fellows around the world and have been the president of the International Association of Endocrine Surgeons. Um, I'm now in full-time clinical practice and uh, enjoy teaching and educating uh, young surgeons, general practitioners, anyone who wants to find out about the problem of thyroid disease, as well as having a big involvement with the Australian Thyroid Foundation, which is a patient support organisation, which gives tremendous support to everyone. What a wealth of knowledge and information for us to share. Now, Lee, before we go on and focus on the topic of thyroid goiters, why don't we give it a context and tell us how common are goiters and in which age groups and which agenda? Right. Well, thyroid nodules, which is basically what it's all about. Goiter is just a term to say that there's an enlarged thyroid there. So thyroid nodules are incredibly common depending upon how you assess them, but probably more than 50% of the older female population will have a goiter, which most of the time they've been totally unaware of. So it's very, very common. It's probably the most common endocrine disorder around the world. But hitherto, most of it has never been diagnosed because most of them never cause a clinical problem, never present clinically never get picked up and, of course, never need treatment. And so the big change has been the fact that in certainly in Western society, we're now starting to discover these incidental nodules and goiters, most of which, the vast majority of which, don't need treatment. And so the key aspect of managing goiter is, in fact, to work out the ones that you should leave alone and not do anything about. Part of the problem, of course, is that that has now caused a bit of a pendulum swing. And so one of the big issues with general practice is to work your way through the multitude of guidelines that are now telling you, now this is the ones you shouldn't treat, this is the ones you shouldn't investigate. So it's a little bit of a complex swing at the moment. 
maybe we can address that by looking at some cases. I, I thought I would just bring up one that is common enough for most of us as GPs. Uh, Lee, uh, we have, say, a 50-year-old uh, female who has noticed a lump on the left side of her neck and in the past three months uh, has felt a sensation of choking. Now, take us through uh, how you would approach this and share your thinking with us. Right. Well, the important thing about someone like this is that they actually present with a, a clinical problem, which is different to the patient who presents with an incidental thyroid nodule. In fact, most patients like this come along already having had an ultrasound performed. So the first thing that tends to be done is to perform an ultrasound because it's now said that an ultrasound is almost an extension of the, the clinical examination. So in this case, she comes along to the general practitioner. You obviously take a history from her and she gives this interesting history of She's Italian, her mother had a goiter, her two sisters had a goiter. There's an uncle somewhere who she thinks may have had a cancer. And obviously she's um, been seeing you for some time and having thyroid function tests done, all of which have been normal. But this is a new event. So you do a clinical examination, check the history. There's nothing in the history that's changed. She doesn't have any symptoms of thyroid dysfunction. But on examination, you can feel that she clearly has a lump on the left side of the neck, which has all the clinical features of a multinodular goiter. The first step that is generally done is to get an ultrasound because it's readily available. It's an extension of the physical examination. In her case, she goes along, gets an ultrasound done, and they report it as showing a multinodular goiter, mm -hmm. the dominant nodule on the left side, which corresponds to what you can feel. And that's about three centimetres in size. It's cystic. It's got some solid components to it. And it's classified as what's called a TR2 nodule. Next to it is a smaller nodule just below it, which is only 1.4 centimetres in size. And it's classified as TR4 nodule. Now the TR classification is a newer form of classification that's come out from the American College of Radiologists mm -hmm. and it's been set up as an attempt to reduce the number of unnecessary needle biopsies and further investigations that get done as a result of incidental ultrasounds. Mm -hmm. It's a very good system. It's a well, well organized, well set up system that's been appropriately validated, where the radiologist looks at an ultrasound and then makes a number of scores or gives points for features such as the composition of the nodule, whether it's cystic or solid, its echogenicities, that is, whether it's hyperechoic or hypoechoic its shape, and that's an interesting thing in thyroid nodules, so nodules that are wider rather than taller are often benign, whereas thyroid nodules that are taller, that is they grow upwards uh, and towards the surface of the thyroid, have a higher risk of being a cancer. Mm -hmm. The shape, the margin, whether or not there's irregularity, and then they look for calcification. So there's a scoring system where each of those get assigned mm -hmm. and then it gets 
given a grade from TR1 through to TR5. But attached to that grade are now a number of recommendations. And the recommendations are either forget about it, nothing to worry about it, you don't need to follow it up, or it needs to be followed, or this is highly suspicious and you need to proceed to needle biopsy. Now, almost every radiologist uh, in the country now will follow those guidelines. So you get the report, and at the end of it, you'll have the four largest nodules with that classification and a recommendation. So if we look at this lady, she had an ultrasound. It was TR2, three centimetres. That's non-suspicious. Don't worry about it. It's a colloid nodule. So unless it causes any clinical concerns, no follow-up is needed. The one that was next to it was 1.4 centimetres, and that is TR4, which is classified as moderately suspicious. Mm -hmm. You might think, well, that should have a fine needle biopsy, but the TIRAD recommendations also include size. And their criteria are that if it's bigger than 1.5 centimetres, you should proceed to needle biopsy. If it's less than 1.5 centimetres, but bigger than a centimetre, you follow it up. If it's less than a centimetre, you don't need to follow that particular module up. So the report that came back for her would have been TR2 nodule three centimetres, don't follow, TR, oh sorry, TR2 nodule, and then TR4 nodule, moderately suspicious, fine needle biopsy, not required. Mm -hmm. And that's where, in this case, it would be appropriate to get a specialist input to it. Because one of the problems is that the tyrad classification is all about reducing the number of needle biopsies based on radiological criteria. But it doesn't take into account clinical context. So in this clinical context, she would have come along to one of our clinics mm -hmm. and the history, you find out that there's a big history of thyroid disease, possible history of thyroid cancer, and more importantly, that she's actually symptomatic. Mm -hmm. So she's got a lump there, she's having a little bit of trouble swallowing, she's uncomfortable with it. Clinical examination gets done, and lo and behold, she sure does have a, a, a multinodular goiter. But the nodule below the big cyst is quite hard, quite irregular, and quite worrying. So under those circumstances, even though the TIRADS classification that you get in your report says no need to proceed to needle biopsy, it's really important to appreciate that those are only guidelines and that it's got to be taken into the clinical context. So in this case, we recommended that she go on and have, you know, the recommendation would be to go on and have a needle biopsy. However, before you do that, the most important thing to do before proceeding to a needle biopsy is one more test. And that's to think about thyroid function because thyroid disease has both the structural and the functional component to it. And it's really, really important to find out what the function is about before proceeding to needle biopsy. Mm -hmm. Because people who, for example, are thyrotoxic um, will give false results on needle biopsy. If they're hypothyroid, it's important to understand that. So before getting a needle biopsy done, we organize a TSH. And in, in her case, 
the TSH was suppressed. So she's thyrotoxic with a multinodular goiter with a clinically suspicious nodule, which is smaller on one side. So what does that mean? Well, she has a goiter and she has thyrotoxicosis. Hmm. And it's important to now try and work out what the cause of the thyrotoxicosis is before proceeding to look at the individual nodules. And there are a number of options, number of possibilities. The commonest is that she just has a simple toxic multinodular goiter. And this is just a, a goiter that's been growing for years and years and years. And as it gets bigger and bigger, there are more thyroid cells. And slowly you progress to thyrotoxicosis on the basis of the volume of, of the goiter. However, it's also possible, certainly given her family history, that she has Graves' disease with incidental nodules. So she may well have an underlying autoimmune problem with grave disease on a background of a long-standing multinodular goiter. She could also have a toxic adenoma, that is a neoplastic process, a benign neoplastic process inside the small background multinodular goiter, or even she could have Hashimoto's thyroiditis in the acute phase so a different, the opposite autoimmune disorder to Graves' disease, where she's getting destruction of the thyroid gland. But in the initial phase of that, she will have thyrotoxicosis. Mm -hmm. That's due to leakage of thyroxin from the cells in that early destructive phase. So anyone who is thyrotoxic before you proceed with any other tests, the best thing to do is to do a thyroid nucleus scan. Old-fashioned test, we don't use it all that often nowadays, but it's certainly important to do that first in a patient with thyrotoxicosis. And it's classic. In a multinodular goiter, you'll just get patchy uptake uh, throughout the whole uh, of, of, the, um, of the goiter. In a patient with Graves' disease, the background will light up and all the nodules will be quite cold. In a patient with a toxic adenoma, you have the opposite position. The dominant nodule will light up and the rest of the thyroid gland will be suppressed. If you happen to have the acute phase of Hashimoto's, no uptake at all. It's a classic picture because it's a damage process. So I always get a nuclear medicine scan once I see a suppressed TSH and you've got the diagnosis of thyrotoxicosis. Well, in this lady's case, she had a nuclear medicine scan. In fact, she had a toxic multinodular goiter with patchy uptake everywhere, except for the 1.4 centimeter nodule mm. was cold. So we've got a toxic multinodular goiter, but with a suspicious nodule on the nuclear medicine scan as well. So that's a really good indication to go ahead and get a fine needle biopsy done on that worrying 1.4 centimetre nodule, even though the ultrasound report said that that wasn't, uh, wasn't really required according to the guidelines. As we go on then, we do a fine needle biopsy. So that's uh, once again done under ultrasound control. And in her case, the report comes back as Bethesda 3. Fine needle biopsy, is a process where cells are taken out, put onto, a, onto a, 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 um, a plate and then looked at for cytological changes. Mm -hmm. So in the thyroid, it's a little bit different 
to other tissues, for example, where the pathologist is just looking for cancer cells or not. It's a different type of grading. At one end, you'll have the truly benign nodules, which is characterized just by having colloid, jelly, and a few normal follicular cells. And if you can see that, 98% certain that nodule is completely benign, nothing to worry about. Mm -hmm. At the other end of the spectrum, there are the truly malignant ones, the first of six, where they see cancer cells, before cancer cells, mm -hmm. and that nodule is, is uh, clearly malignant. But there's a group of what are called indeterminate biopsies in the middle, which are really just a grading system. And in her case, let's say this was a Bethesda 3, which is classified as a tibia of uncertain significance, mm -hmm. um, which is a terrible title. You know, you have to spend your life trying to explain what a tibia of uncertain significance is about, because it sounds like no one has been able to work out the diagnosis, but it's a classic category where they see these atypical cells, but there are a number of different possibilities in terms of the treatment or in terms of the diagnosis. It may well be that it's just been a bleed and there's some reactive degenerative change. So you see these atypical cells. It may be that the patient has Hashimoto's thyroiditis and you'll see some atypicals from that. Or it may well be that it's a true tumor or a neoplasm that's uh, developing in that area. And so you see the atypical cells. One of the problems with cytology reports on fine needle biopsy, the, the biopsies of the thyroid is that it's exactly the same problem where the cytologist just reports the cytology and makes standard recommendations. Now for category three cells, the classic cytology report will come back saying, a tibia of uncertain significance suggests repeat fine needle biopsy in three months' time. And what they don't report is the fact that the entire Bethesda committee recommendations are repeat in three months' time, depending upon the clinical context. The reason that's reported is that a lot of these, as I said, are just a little bit of inflammation, a little bit of bleeding, and in three months' time, it reverts back to benign whereas the true tumours will progress and may go up to the next stage. That's why it's very, very important to put all these sorts of things into context. Mm -hmm. and, and so in this case, the clinical context was that she has thyrotoxicosis. She has a large nodule with pressure there. She's got a clinically suspicious nodule, both on radiological and nuclear medicine grounds, that make us worry about this being a tumour, so that the recommendation that came on the cytology of atypia of uncertain significance repeating three months' time is not the sort of appropriate clinical response. The appropriate clinical response is there are other grounds for dealing with this and treating this nodule, and so we shouldn't repeat it uh, in three months' time. We see quite a few patients that go along have a Bethesda 3 atypical biopsy, get repeated in three months' time, same report comes back, repeated in another three months' time, and the year goes by and there's a, a nasty invasive cancer there by right. the time anyone has appreciated the importance of clinical grounds. 
So with all those things, the recommendation is to deal with this in terms of surgery. Look, this is actually really important because I, I can just see how confusing it can get for, uh, for us as GPs. Uh, to be honestly, the two ends of the scale are not hard for us. The ones that are looking all pretty normal and the ones that are looking terribly abnormal, they are not too hard. But once you start having TR3s and 4s and Bethesda 3s and 4s, that's when I'm thinking, oh dear, you know, I'm just so thankful there are people like ourselves to at least get an opinion from. So my question to you is, uh, when do we actually get an opinion about something that's indeterminate? And when do we actually sit and sit comfortably and not miss things? That's a really good question. I, I think, as, as you said, Bethesda 2, very simple, very straightforward. That's benign. Cancer needs to go ahead. Bethesda 3, if you've taken a good history and there's nothing that stands out as being clinically important, then it's perfectly reasonable to wait the three months and get another biopsy. But to do that, you need to... to really assess the patient. You need to assess it clinically because if it's just a multinodular goiter and there's nothing worrying clinically, no hard nodule, it's fine to wait for three months. If they have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, then it's perfectly reasonable to wait three months because they're the sorts of things that will give that atypical pattern. But if you get a 20-year-old young girl with a perfectly normal thyroid, who's euthyroid, who's got a single firm nodule, it's totally inappropriate because that's not just a degenerative lesion. That's got to be a tumour of some sort that's mm. grown. So it's a matter of putting it into clinical practice. If you're not confident with that sort of decision-making, then, yes, I think Bethesda 3 nodules are the ones that really need uh, specialist input just to make those sort of assessments. Mm. Certainly don't keep on repeating it at three months because the, the, the cytology report always comes back the same, atypical repeat in three months' time. And that's, that's often clinically appropriate. I'm getting the idea, um, Lee, that there are two things that will help me make a decision whether to refer or not. So if I get a report back on the biopsy and there's a lot of blood, knowing that there's probably tra traumatic biopsy, I can probably disregard that one and maybe repeat and see what happens. Yeah. If I know the patient has Hashimoto's, you think maybe I should repeat that. But in the absence of Hashimoto's, in the absence of blood and a Bethesda 3, I'm beginning to think maybe I should ask someone. So, so I guess, uh, you know, just having been taught that, I already have some guidelines. And the other one that has guided me was your comment that if they have clinical symptoms, that's again a different thing. If they've got a family history, that's again a different thing. So there are little things that help us, aren't there? In, indeed. And, and it's important to not to forget that, that clinical context, because in her case, the biopsy was there to, to guide us as to what was actually going on but she's symptomatic. She's got a big nodule, which is not the one that we're biopsying anyway. She's got a strong family history and she's got thyroid toxicosis. Hmm. Um, so you're not going to say to her, your, your report says that you don't need to worry. 
she's someone who needs to have some appropriate treatment. Mm. So this is the sort of patient we sit uh, sit down and, and talk to and think about the treatment. Mm-hmm. Her case, there are um, a number of potential options, mm-hmm. but each of them have their uh, upsides and downsides, pros and cons. If you're worried about the thyrotoxicosis and she wasn't all that symptomatic, but she did have a suppressed TSH, you could consider starting her off on antithyroid medication. One of the problems, though, is that people who also have an obstructing nodule will often get symptomatically worse from the obstruction when you start them off on antithyroid medication. Because once you start antithyroid medication, the TSH goes up. And as the TSH goes up, the drive to growth goes up. So thyrotoxic multinodular goiters often get bigger once you start antithyroid medication. So it it can be a short-term thing, but in the long term, it's just going to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and she'll eventually come to some definitive treatment. So you talk about that, but it's probably not a good long-term option, especially given that she's only 50 and she's got many more decades to go. Radioactive iodine has been around for a long time for the treatment of thyrotoxicosis, but once again, it doesn't work well for a toxic multinodular goiter. Mm-hmm. It's still good for Graves' disease uh, where it reduces the whole thyroid gland down, but in a toxic multinodular goiter, it only works by getting rid of the background of normal thyroid tissue and the nodules often remain. So you then end up having cured the thyrotoxicosis, but with a nodular goiter, which has been exposed to um, radioactive iodine, and there's now also increasing reports of thyroid malignancy and second thyroid cancers occurring down the track after radioactive iodine. So it's also not an option. Mm -hmm. So this is one case where the only real satisfactory option is an operation to remove her thyroid, especially given the strong family history. So it's likely that the same thing would happen to her as would happen. And there's also a possible family history of thyroid cancer. So you still need to be concerned about that, that one nodule that's sitting there. So uh, the recommendation is to go ahead with an operation. Usually in patients with mild thyrotoxicosis, you don't need to prepare them with any antithyroid medication, only if they've got you know, significant uh, thyrotoxic symptoms. So she can just go ahead, talk to her, uh, go in and she would have a total thyroidectomy. Mm-hmm. In this day and age, we no longer just do partial thyroidectomies or take a little bit of the thyroid off as, as used to be done. The best treatment is just to remove the whole of the thyroid. Following that, of course, patients then need to be on thyroxine for the rest of their life. Uh, that's a very straightforward management option. Obviously, we, we you know the general practitioner is very much involved in getting that on board and fine-tuning it and following through with it. Um, Thyroxine medication is is something that concerns patients a great deal. Uh, I talk to patients and say it's simply a replacement for what the body normally makes. If you go into websites, there are hundreds upon hundreds of websites of patients complaining about 
thyroxin medication and uh, how difficult it is, but it's not really difficult provided uh, they follow the rules and provided they've got super good supervision for it. The other big advantage nowadays is the availability of the non-refrigerated forms of thyroxin. There's several brands of those available nowadays, which means that the patients can get the thyroxin, sit it you know, by the bedside, and provided they get into that habit of taking it regularly every morning, giving themselves you know, an hour till they have uh, food, breakfast, and doing it on a regular basis, they do very well. They need to have it checked initially. So we would start them on a, a dose of thyroxine suitable for their body weight. And then six weeks later, get it checked. And then it's usually appropriate for the rest of their lives. What's the dose by body weight? There are a number of ways of doing it. I use the simple formula of 1.6 uh, micrograms times their body weight, which is a good starting point. There are other formula that use the BMI, but if you start, everyone is slightly different. So the best thing is to start it on that dose. So body weight times 1.6 into micrograms, and then six weeks time, just get their uh, TSH and their free T4 checked and go up and down. The other advantage of some of the new thyroxins are that they come in small dose increments. So they'll come in 25 microgram increments all the way up from 25 up to 200. So the days of having to split thyroxine tablets or go up and down are gone. It's really, I think it's much better to get patients onto a regular daily dose of the same dose. It, it used to be common when we didn't have that same range of tablets to, for example, give 100 micrograms, 100 micrograms, three days a week and 150, you know, another four days a week. But nowadays, once you've worked out the dose that the patient needs over a week, divide it by seven, and then you can get the most appropriate 25 microgram tablet to fit that and give that same dose every day. And patients are usually much happier, much more even than having up and down doses. So I think that's an important aspect. I think it's important to discourage patients from trying alternative products, uh, you know, the desiccated uh, sort of uh, pig uh, thyroxine. It just isn't appropriately standardised and it can go up and down. But otherwise, patients do very well on thyroxine. Um, if you look at patients who have difficulties with thyroxine, more than 90% of them are essentially non-compliant. So the issue of managing it as a general practitioner is really just talking about compliance. It's you know, forgetting to take it or feeling a bit low one day and taking two tablets instead or leaving it, you know, uh, in the hot sun or out on the beach. So it's little things like that make a big difference. Just a quick uh, word uh, for us, Ali, uh, knowing that surgery and all the lack of com complications uh, from surgery, of course, varies in good hands and lesser hands or people who do surg thyroid surgery less often. How can I tell uh, if my surgeon is adequately trained? <laughs> That's a very good question. It's a matter of, of knowing your surgeon, but you're, 
You're absolutely correct in that there are quite a number of studies now showing that the complication rate of thyroid surgery is, is related to, to volume. There are a number of ways of ensuring that one is to go to a group. Uh, so there are a number of large units that uh, do focus on endocrine surgery and thyroid surgery and going to, uh, you know, that sort of a group, most of which are associated with the big uh, or with public hospitals and universities uh, can give you that assurance. But there are also organisations, for example, there's the, the Australian New Zealand Association of Endocrine Surgeons that has mm -hmm. a website that has find a surgeon on it and you can go on there and find people who are accredited as thyroid surgeons and uh, look at their experience mm -hmm. um, so it, it is important uh, I think in Australia we do very very well one of the issues of some you know other countries is that they don't have that same concentration of experienced endocrine and thyroid surgeons uh, available Thank you for that comment. Now, if you don't mind, I want to go very quickly to address the issue that we hadn't touched, and that is the issue of the incidental thyroid nodding. Yes, so, so this is the pendulum that, that's come back. The, originally, the only patients who turned up were those who had goiters and you could feel their lumps. Then as imaging started to come in, we're now in a situation where the, the majority of patients presenting with thyroid nodules usually have them picked up on the basis of having had a uh, carotid Doppler or an MRI scan, and they are completely incidental. They are, you know, they would have never presented unless that scan had been performed. Even worse, um, there are places around the world where they've gone the next step and introduced routine ultrasound screening. And, and one of the greatest failed experiments in public health in the world was in South Korea, where in, what was it, 1999, the government decided to introduce annual ultrasound screening of every adult in Korea to try and pick up thyroid cancer and reduce the incidence. And what happened was that there was a order of magnitude increase in the number of nodules, a 15-fold increase in the number of thyroid cancers picked up, and obviously, 15 to 30-fold increase in the number of operations performed. Vast numbers of operations, vast number of cancers, no change whatsoever in the death rate because all the cancers were picked up were incidental papillary microcarcinomas. And that's been a disaster because the complication, the cost of the public health, and that's been reversed. That took five years to reverse that whole program. So that's why there's this focus on the incidental lesion. Following that, it, it used to be that, you know, you, you look at a nodule and anything bigger than a centimetre needs a biopsy, but that's the advantage of the American College of Radiologists TIRAD system that it's now very selective, well-documented, well-validated, and every radiology, every ultrasound report should have that on it. So follow it, it's there, it's well-documented, but also keep in mind that all of that information is simply guidelines, not absolute uh, directions as to how to treat patients, and the clinical context always trumps it. 
But yes, the, the, the common situation is someone 50, 60 going along to have a carotid Doppler done because they were, uh, you know, had a bit of a dizzy turn and they say, oh, there's a two centimetre nodule in the right lobe of the thyroid. Patient is completely asymptomatic. Very simple, very straightforward thyroid function tests just to make sure they're not thyrotoxic. Ultrasound, assess the thyroid uh, score and follow the recommendations of that unless the patient is symptomatic. If they're asymptomatic, then the ACR guidelines will say below a certain score, you don't even need to follow them up. Just tell them there's nothing that's of concern and that's been well validated in terms of ongoing care. There's a group where follow-up is recommended and follow-up means annual clinical examination, thyroid function tests and repeat ultrasound. And the final group where fine needle biopsy is recommended. And as I said, following those guidelines, I think has clarified the whole problem of how to deal with the incidental uh, thyroid nodule. It's very clear and uh, very well documented and very well validated. Well, thank you very much, Nee, for actually making it very clear how to grade the ultrasound and what it means for GPs, and then going on to explain um, the Bethesda scores of the biopsies and ex exactly what it means, and making it so clear that these are guidelines and the clinical context always needs to be taken into account. And um, I, I think that makes us, uh, if you like, better doctors because we don't trust the art and not just the words. Indeed, indeed. Now, what are your final key messages to our GP listeners, Lee? Well, just, just to remind you that thyroid nodules are unbelievably common. You know, 50% of the elderly community will have a thyroid nodule if you go looking for them, but the vast majority need absolutely no treatment at all. So the challenge of general practice is to work out those who don't need to be treated without missing the ones who may have serious disease. And the guidelines are there, good history, good clinical examination, assess thyroid function, not just on history, but by doing a routine TSH on every single patient. And then an ultrasound, which is really just an extension of your clinical examination, then follow the guidelines that are made and the recommendations in terms of how to deal with the pathology that turns up on the basis of that ultrasound report. Thank you for your teaching and for your time, Lee. That's um, really, really helpful. Pleasure, thank you. Have a very good day. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website 
go to the CPD section and click on self-claim. 